I appreciate the uh, songs that uh, Tim and the AD band have let us uh, through uh, tonight. Very encouraged by that. Uh, there was a line in there that Christ in you is your hope. And I don't know if you realize what the Bible teaches, but if you're in Christ, if you know Christ, you have as much chance of going to heaven as Jesus does because you're in him. That's where the security is, and grace, not your performance and behavior. Of course, that's a radical, life-changing message. It is. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we had a marvelous day camp and vacation Bible school here at Beach Haven a few weeks ago, and I believe it changed our character. It uh, gave us a great opportunity to do some neat work. I think it also satisfied a lot of our souls because... We were wanting to penetrate our community in ways that uh, beforehand uh, I think we had just uh, dreamed about in some instances. Uh, you know, of course, um, some have estimated about 70% of those who attended uh, were not part of Beach Haven. And they weren't the VBS circuit kids. Uh, that, you know, how parents will drop them off week after week. Those poor children, they'll go to four to six VBSs and get submerged six straight weeks in a row, you know. <laughs> But um, anyway, that's, uh, that's what they um, had with that. But we, we didn't have the VBS circuit kids because I was told about eight other VBSs were going on simultaneously, so they were all at their own churches. So they're high and dry the rest of the summer. But uh, anyway, um, that's what took place there. About 70%, some have estimated, were not uh, kids from Beach Haven. The second thing is, is that a large percentage of them, uh, well, when, when you looked at the crowd, during the rally, the VBS rally, it looked like that throne scene, you know, maybe a special session with the children would look like in Revelation 7, 9 through 11. We had children from uh, uh, every continent uh, and every tribe, every nationality represented here in Athens, and that's where our heart is. Uh, more than anything, that's where the Lord's heart is. And uh, a great significant part of that uh, of course, we're our church members and a number who've just, uh, God has just recently sent to us. And uh, over the next several services, we're going to have some of them sharing with you um, a uh, personal word, a testimony uh, about that week. And the first is this evening with Allie Crenshaw. Allie's going to come and take a moment and share with you a testimony about her week with our day camp and vacation Bible school. You give her a Beach Haven welcome, would you? Good. Oh, we need a microphone. You're good? Okay.
We thank you for those who may not be with us, but whose hearts are in the right place. We pray that you would um, just be with your word that is shared tonight. We pray that you would open our hearts and our eyes and our ears, and that we may grow closer to you. In your most holy and precious name, amen. Um, so, uh, in light of the fact that I don't really like microphones, I also don't really like taking selfies, okay? Uh, and one of the reasons why is because my face always ends up looking like this. You know, because like you gotta get, we gotta get like right there and to get you and the other person behind you or beside you or like right there on your neck. Um, and so the, I guess that's why they invented this selfie stick so that we could get others in the picture with us. And that's really what I wanna talk about tonight um, are the others. You know, uh, kids, and that's usually who I talk to, so talking to adults is a little bit different, but um, kids, they just, they just look at everything you do. I mean, some things you don't even realize. Like this past year, I had a child who said, um, Ms. Crenshaw, I'll always remember you for the lady who wore scarves. Thanks. <laughs> I taught you all year, and you're going to remember me for scarves. Great. Ms. Crenshaw, I will always remember you for the lady who wears four different layers. Again, I taught you all year long. <laughs> but it's amazing what they'll pick up on. And they pick up on the, the, the weirdest times, like times that we're talking with each other, times that we're talking with our friends, the times that they don't even think we're looking or they don't think that, that we think they're looking, but they really are. Um, and then they come up and they say, so you were talking about such and such and such. And I'm like, you really weren't supposed to be listening to that. <laughs> um, and it's the same way here at church. And I think that that's... Um, you know, one of the reasons why we're on mission all the time. We're not just on mission here when we're here at church, but we're also on mission throughout our whole daily lives with the people that we interact with, with the people that we see at the grocery store. Um, and it's so important to know that they're watching us even when we don't think they are. And I know that sometimes when we head out to Walmart, we only want to get the things that we want to get and we want to get out. Um, but it's so important for us to know that there may be a reason why we're there at that time. And I can honestly say this is the first year that I've actually taught VBS. I know you look at me and say, well, you've been a teacher for 10 years. Yes, I have. I've just never been brave enough to step out on a leap of faith and teach VBS. And it was such a joy to come at the right time here at Beach Haven and have the opportunity to teach. There was this little girl that, um, I say little, she was like in the upper grades, who I met, um, and she seemed, you know, like the kids that I had taught in fifth grade, rambunctious, a little bit wild, you know, uh, full of energy, way more energy than I had. So at the end of the day, when we were um, sending the kids home, I noticed that she was sitting there by herself, and I was sitting there by myself because I was exhausted, and I just really felt Christ speaking to me to talk to her. And when we were speaking with each other, she just assumed that because she knew Jesus, that she had Jesus in her heart. And I've met all sorts of different believers, but I've never met one that's like that. And it made me wonder how many people I've walked by who said, yes, I know Jesus, and assumed they had him in their heart 
But just because you know who Jesus is doesn't mean you have him in your heart. Doesn't mean you have a relationship with him. And it broke me to the core. And it made me realize that there are people that I probably am not even reaching, not just in my job, but in my daily life. Because when I go up to them, one of the questions I ask them is, do you know Jesus? Well, anybody can say they know Jesus. Do you really know Jesus? You know, in Philippians 2, 2 through 4, it says, Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And that goes back to that selfie that I was talking about. You know, it's, it's, it's neat how the world can take a selfie and then turn it into something that God could use. Because really, now that we have those selfie sticks, we're looking at others, not just at ourselves. And it's so neat to see that we can take something as simple as a picture and make it a thousand words. And we can take something as simple as VBS and make it priceless to people who know Jesus but don't truly know Jesus, who watch us on a daily basis, who look at how we act and how we treat others and how we interact with each other, how we love And then take that and ask themselves if they want it too. So my charge to you, for for those of you, who's who's a part of the Athens soccer and football? Basketball camp next week. Okay. So my charge to you next week is that, you know, you think about what unifies your group. What is it that you want to accomplish next week? Because there's several things that Christ accomplishes throughout our walk. He accomplishes us getting to know him, asking him into our hearts. Then he accomplishes us learning how to be in a relationship with him. And you may experience both of those next week. But what is your true goal next week going to be? And do you all have that same mindset? That's so important. It's important to not look at just yourself, but to take that selfie stick picture and look at the others who are behind you. You know, it may not be you who was supposed to get the Gatorade out there to the field, but it may be you who needed to do it at that time to be at that specific appointed place to make a difference in somebody else's life. It may not be you who's supposed to be out there on the soccer field playing like you've never played soccer before. But you may need to be out there in midfield running constantly to be able to sit with that child who's out of breath and let them know more about Jesus. Sometimes it's not about us. And really, when we ask Jesus into our heart, we made it not about us. We made it about him and his call. And that's one of the main reasons why we love Beach Haven is because they give us that opportunity to use our gifts and talents 
and to serve no matter in what capacity. And Paul gives us a solution for that selfish ambition that we as humans constantly fight on a daily basis. It's humility. Just be humble. That child may be the only Jesus that you see. That child may be the only Jesus that they see. What message are you sending them? I know you're tired. I know you're going to be tired next week. I know you're going to be sweating. I know it's going to be hot. But think about that message that you're sending them through your actions, through your language, through how you treat them and how you treat others, even when they may not be looking. Because trust me, they are. You know, it's that right attitude that really helps us focus on the value of others and gives us a new perspective on what being Christ-like really means. And so one thing I want to leave you with, and I really am just going to read it because it just sounds so much better on paper, is that I want you to remember that when you're at Athens Reach Day Camp, VBS, or even working at your daily job, Christ desires for us to go above and beyond what's expected from society today. If we assume that others are believers and they simply just know about Christ, like that little girl that I mentioned earlier, then we aren't modeling the Christ-like mindset that God intended for us to model as his followers. This life we live is no longer about us when we accept Christ into our hearts. This life becomes about Jesus and his unconditional love for others. It would have been easy to, to assume and just walk on. It would have been easy not to even go up to her because she was sitting on her side of the bench and I'm sitting on mine. But is that really what Christ calls us to do? He's giving us a way to do it, to be humble. So let's remember to be humble whose synonym just happens to be unassuming. And I'm pretty sure whose antonym would be to model everything. So my motto to you next week, as you get ready to head out and do the work that God has planned for you, is to assume nothing and to model everything. Because it may just make all the difference in the world. Thank you. Good. Appreciate it. Thank you, bud. I read uh, today uh, someone said that only one out of 100 people will read the Bible through, but 99 out of 100 will read the Christian. It's an excellent statement. Thank you very much, Allie. I want us to look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, as we continue our study in prayer. Make sure that you keep up with the reading schedule. We're doing the lesson before the reading. We're not doing the reading in preparation for the lesson. We're doing it the other way around. And there are some schedules as you leave this, uh, this, this uh, evening. But we are looking at the uh, disciples' prayer, Matthew 6, 9 through 13. And there are many advantages to praying the disciples' prayer. One is its divinity. Uh, this comes from the Lord himself. Jesus said in verse 9, In this manner, therefore, pray. Then there are advantages of its simplicity. Uh, when God came there to the earth and told us how to pray, he used language we could understand. Matthew 12, 37, The common people heard Jesus gladly. 
Uh, Abraham Lincoln said God must love common people because he made so many of them. They're common. And then there's its totality. It covers everything. It covers God's interest and it covers our interests. And then the items, you can look at it from the standpoint of items. There's, there's uh, praise, power, provision, pardon, and protection in uh, verses 9 through 13, where it says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Jesus encouraged his disciples to pray prayers, effective prayers that the Father would hear by making use of the disciples' prayer. And you can be effective in prayer when using this prayer, clutching your heart to it, attaching your soul to it, and praying in this way. Now, uh, let me uh, uh, go ahead and address a question that may be surfacing as it did in mine, uh, in your mind, as it did in mine. And that is, why is there so much instruction and even other biblical passages that don't follow this precisely as it is here? This is how we're supposed to pray. Why is there other instruction on prayer anywhere in the Bible or in some of the books that we read? Well, I think that's very simple. Most of the prayer that we find in the Bible and most of the prayer instruction we find in Christian books cover everything that's here. And so there's an awful lot of overlap, a lot of synonyms and similar concepts that are used. In fact, uh, Jesus would teach this on at least two occasions here in uh, Matthew chapter 6 and then in Luke chapter 11. And he does not say the identical thing each time. And so... Um, uh, the, uh, he was a traveling itinerant evangelist, and he oftentimes repeated the same teaching, and Luke and Matthew recorded it. So uh, that's, uh, that's what we've got there. So there's some great advantages to praying the disciples' prayer, and we can be effective when we pray, as Jesus said to pray. And first, Jesus said to pray for the Father's name. Now, name in the first century indicated reputation and character. I could throw out some names right now, and you would immediately think of character. Uh, I, could, I could talk about um, um, uh, former staff members that have been here, like Dr. Sims. Well, that, you know, that comes with the reputation of integrity and biblical preaching and great giftedness in the pulpit, among other things. Uh, I, I could talk about Billy Graham, and immediately you start thinking of a certain character, reputation, and work. Um, I, I could mention uh, that I think someone might be a Hitler well, you would understand a dictator who's into killing people, all right, uh, unjustly so. And then um, a variety of other names we could throw about, historical names, and they all come attached with character and reputation, and the same is true with the Father's name. And sometimes, what Jesus is acknowledging here is that sometimes something can become attached to the Father's name that is not appropriate. And what he's saying here is, let's pray in such a way that God's name will be seen and viewed as hallowed or holy or stainless. That we pray in such a way that there will be no stain attached to the name of God. None whatsoever. That people will not misunderstand him. That they will have a clear vision of who he is. And that's what it means to pray, our Father in heaven Hallowed be your name. Now, the notion of praying to God as a father is, was quite revolutionary in the New Testament. Seventy times Jesus used this in the Gospels and referred to God as Father. Seventy times in the four Gospels, one time in the Old Testament. And so Jesus highlighted the fatherhood nature of God in the Scripture. Now, we've got to be careful as we talk about God the Father 
and what it means as we walk with God as Father. We have to be careful that we do not project 20th or 21st century sentimentality back onto the biblical text and a sentimentality that did not exist in that day. Too often, the notion of God as Father or Abba Father is misconstrued as intimacy. Now, there's an awful lot of reason to believe you can get close to God, some direct biblical passages, but that's not really wrapped up in the notion of God as Father. More, the notion of God as Father is that He is reliable, He is stable, and He provides security. There are other passages that can address intimacy. Don't misunderstand me. That is uh, James 4.8, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. In your presence is fullness of joy. Okay? Uh, Psalms, um, Psalm 16. Uh, verse 2. And so uh, that, that element is there, but it's not wrapped up in the notion of Father. When we call God Father or Abba Father, we are indicating His responsibility, His reliability, and the security and safety He provides for children. So here's the point. We care so much for the Heavenly Father's reputation that we can't stand the thought of Him having a poor reputation because of the behavior or words or thoughts of another human being. And so we pray that he will act in such a way that any stain that has distorted his reputation will be ripped from his name. Now you have to understand, in the demonic kingdom, staining the name of God is a relentless moment-by-moment activity. It is. It's not fair. It's not fair at all. But the demonic kingdom is always attempting to stain the name of God the Father. And we've got to pray that he would intervene in such a way that that would not take place. And there's several different kinds of stains. There are theological stains. And they run the gamut. They cover the spectrum. I remember a church planner writing about his experience in Seattle, how before he planted a church, he visited a lot of churches and wanted to just get the feel of the religious scene in Seattle. And he's quite effective. But he walked into uh, one real formal church uh, in a downtown, I believe a downtown area, Uh, with his baseball cap on and did not remove it when he went in. And the usher met him and asked him to remove his house. So he went in, sat down, and listened to a lesbian pastor. You see a problem with that? Remove your cap, which is not a biblical command, to listen to a lesbian pastor who's violating in grotesque forms and perverse forms the Word of God. You see a theological stain. Their, their approach to church and worship would not allow a ball camp in the worship center, but it would allow a lesbian in the pulpit. There, there are problems with that. There's a theological uh, consensus among some groups that will allow from that. We are praying that God would remove that stain from his name. Now, of course, we pray for it by grace. What the lesbian needs to do is just get saved. Can you imagine what a witness she would be then? I've known some to do that. On the other hand, we've got uh, a children's camp that I went to one time years ago where they would break the ice with an opening song about how God loves space aliens. They, they were trying it, with, with good, uh, well, good intentions to declare God's great love for everybody. Okay. But space aliens in worship that has been sanctified by the word of God in prayer. You know, uh, I heard lately that this summer they're singing about God loves zombies in the zombie apocalypse. Okay? Um, no, we, we don't do that in worship. 
And we don't attach God's name to that. That's a theological stain. Uh, naive, probably well-intentioned, but, but very naive. We're praying that God would intervene to remove theological stains. Devotional stains as well. Psalm 68, 19 says that um, if I cherish iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. If, if we hang on to unconfessed sin, we hinder our prayers. Then there are social stains. Uh, he says for us to pray our Father. Samuel said, Far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And this is unique in the Christian faith. Uh, no other faith teaches praying for other people. The Christian faith does. We pray for others and bear them up on our prayers before God. And so we're not to stain our prayers by forgetting we're praying for a new society we're praying for one another. And then personal stains. Romans 2.24, Paul said, The Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. Quoting in Romans 2.24. Now it's not fair, but it's real. That the world will judge God unfairly by the worst example among us, not the best. They will never give credit where credit is due, and they never have. So don't raise your expectations too high. Okay? And I think because they'll cast distorted aspersions on the name of God, there, I, I, I think there's a lot of demonism involved in that. Satan is the father of lies. He generates these. And so do not be surprised if you find that. The way to battle that is not to get frustrated. The way to battle that is to go before God and plead with all your heart with thunder lungs before the throne and ask God to hallow his name. So Jesus said to pray for the Father's name. But then he said to pray for the Father's kingdom. And I like what George Buttrick said about this. He said the prayer, thy kingdom come, if we only knew, is asking God to conduct a major operation. We're asking God when, he said, when we say, thy kingdom come. We're saying, God, we want to ask you to launch a major assault against the demonic kingdom against anything that is fleshly and opposed. We ask you to do it by grace, of course. But we want you to undermine and sabotage everything that does not belong in your kingdom. And, and, and more, we're asking for him to transform that and make use of it for his own purposes. So Matthew 6.10, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, there's a definition of the kingdom used 103 times in the Gospels, and that is it's the rule and reign of God, emphasizing it's not our own rule and reign. Christianity, in its essence, then, is lifting up the king and his rule and putting down and resisting our own, which can be a daily battle oftentimes. Then there's the need of the kingdom. If we have to pray for the kingdom to come, that means that there are times when it's not here, but an alternative kingdom is. You see, the scripture is very real. There is a competition of kingdoms in our world and sometimes even in our own souls. And so that, that's the need for the kingdom. The meaning of the kingdom? Well, it, with um, typical Hebrew parallelism that you find in the Psalms and Proverbs, Jesus uses something here. If you don't understand or have an uh, idea of what it means for the kingdom to come, he gives um, a definition. Your kingdom come, that's the first line, and the second line defines it. And what's the second line? Your kingdom come, your will be done. Your will be done is the meaning of the coming of the kingdom. And what we're asking for is for God to do that now and ultimately later when Jesus' will will be the only will that's allowed anywhere on the earth. 
And so we're, we're praying for his lordship to come now. We're praying for his second coming as well and pleading with him to come and return soon. Like John did at the end of Revelation 22, even so, what? Come, Lord Jesus. And so that's the meaning. Here's the vision. Oh, and this is happy ground. This is happy ground. It doesn't take much for me to get happy with this kind of thing anyway. But look at the vision here. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. That's the least likely place in all the world. But it's possible through prayer. In other words, this world that is so disappointing, this world that is frustrating, this world that seems to be bent on opposing what it is that God wants, even there, God can get it done. There is nothing beyond the power of God. The only thing that lies outside the reach of prayer is what? That which lies outside the will of God. And that's what we're pleading for, is for His will to be done everywhere. So every spot on the earth, every heart that beats in the chest, every soul that's in the body cavity of every human can be subject to the will of God. Prayer can accomplish anything God can accomplish. Prayer is omnipotent just like God is, if it's within His will. In Jesus' name. So that's the vision. So Jesus envisions all the earth conform to his will. And progressively, we can reach that through evangelism. And one day, we'll see it totally, ultimately, in the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's what I got from two words on earth. Then, model of the kingdom. Um, we want the earth to perform and cherish and treasure the will of God as it is in heaven, as it is around that throne. That's what we want it to be here. And we're wanting then for there to be a transformation uh, and an interaction that is transformative between heaven and the earth. Now, you have to understand, Jesus commends spiritual means to get that done. Politics has never performed this. And so talking about transformation in regards to politics, you put your hope in Jesus Christ and his spiritual means of getting it done. Without a soul transformed by the grace of God, you know, in, in, you have to have a soul transformed by the grace of God to get this done. If you want something to look like heaven, you've got to apply Jesus' own means to get it done. And, and, and that's not just a pipe dream. Man, it's happening all over the earth and it's happened plenty in American history. All the remarkable things that have happened, I, I won't take time to repeat those here tonight. But uh, you recall, of course, the time I told you about the coal miners in uh, Wales during the global awakening of 1904 through 1910. Uh, a lot of things happened then. They were an all-time high in bankruptcies because of this revival, because the Bars and saloons went out of business. Uh, they didn't have any more customers. And then uh, the coal mining industry s slowed down for several weeks. They had to retrain the ponies because all the miners got saved. And they quit cussing and the ponies could no longer understand them. You know. And that's the kind of thing God is able to perform. Those are small levels, but on large levels, God has completely vanquished evil on the earth through a powerful movement of the Holy Spirit and transformed communities by spiritual means. So thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we pray for his kingdom to come. We pray for the kingdom before us, and that's Christ's second coming. Near us, that's evangelism. We pray about the kingdom and victory over the kingdom that's against us, demonic activity, and in us the lordship of Jesus Christ. Uh, Elmer Towns 
commented on this, and he said that um, he's uh, explaining how God's will is to be done here. We should pray that God's will will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And he said, in heaven, God's will is done instantly, not later. Enthusiastically, not half-heartedly. Completely, not partially, and perfectly. And that's how we should pray. Then Jesus said to pray for the Father's provision. Now, here he uses the term bread. Give us this day our daily bread. And it's not that he wants us to pray only for bread and we can't pray for water or meat or electricity or to pay our bills or clothing. He's not indicating that by limiting it to bread. Uh, there is a rhetorical device in the New Testament called synecdoche. That rhymes with Schenectady, New York, as in New York. Now look at your neighbor and say, Synecdoche. Rhymes with Schenectady. Okay, that is a rhetorical device you find in the New Testament, and you've used it plenty of times. Have you ever asked a child, do you know your ABCs? Tell me your ABCs. Well, you want to hear more than ABC. You want to hear everything between A and Z. But the ABC part of that question represents the whole. And the same is true with bread. When my dad gave me my first car, he um, said, here are your wheels. Well, I looked at it, and I'm, there, you need to know there were more than four wheels there. There was a body, there were seats, there was you know, a steering wheel, and a variety of other, even a radio. Uh, we, we had those uh, when I was in high school. And so, um, yes, indeed we did. Um, and, and, but he called them wheels. It was a part that represented the whole. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Give us this day our daily bread means give us this day everything that we need. And bread represents is a small part of the whole. Now Jesus has in mind missionaries and mission churches and new churches, modest believers, and I'd go on to say that eventually wealthy believers, because early on there were wealthy believers. That's how the gospel permeated the empire as it trickled down from the wealthy, uh, especially after Paul's ministry. And so everything that they would need to advance the kingdom of God. Now we've got an awful lot of reason to trust the Father to provide for our needs, especially because of his history with us and his history in the world. If you look in our world over centuries, you'll find that the lands that have an abundance of food, for example, are the traditional Christian lands. Uh, we, we've got more food in the traditional Christian lands of the Western world than what we need. In fact, we can export it and feed other nations. There's a famine somewhere. If we can arrange transportation, we can ship it over very quickly. In fact, we are so abundant that some of our farmers are paid not to grow food or they're compensated for additional food that they grow that they can't sell. That's how abundant it is in the traditional Christian lands. Where you have starvation, outside war-torn areas, but where you have starvation are in the lands of false religion, where Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam dominate. That's where you're likely to find um, starvation. Uh, Islam, devaluing of human life. Uh, Hinduism, they won't eat what they're supposed to eat. They think they're their, their relatives, the Hindu doctrine of reincarnation. Buddhism has no feeling. Uh, and so it's silly to say Buddhism is compassionate. No, it's not. It, it's against feeling. Now, there are Buddhists who are compassionate, but they've had to borrow from the Christian faith to come to that. Buddhism discourages feeling in any kind of compassion. You're supposed to set that aside. And the goal is to have no feeling so you can absorb yourself into nirvana, uh, the place, not the band. And so, um, yeah, if you become a Buddhist, you don't become a rock star. But anyway, um, 
That's, uh, that's what we have with, um, with these. And so it, it, it's the lands of the tradition, the lands that traditionally have been associated with Christianity where there's an abundance of food. Folks, God's way works. And we don't deserve it. I mean, we're terribly wicked and we know better. But he's been very kind. Ladies and gentlemen, this prayer has been answered. Give us this day our daily bread. And he's done it. He's been good to us. Then, um, with faith... His history with the faith. If you'll look at the catalog of philanthropy.com, uh, you'll find something remarkable. Uh, the poorest states in the United States are the most generous, and they're typically southern states. Uh, as a percentage of income, they give more to charity and charitable causes. The wealthiest states are the most secular, and they give the least as a percentage of their income. The state that is the poorest is Mississippi, and they give more, Mississippians give more, a percentage of their income to charitable causes, including churches, than any other state in the United States, and they're the poorest. The most wealthy is Connecticut, and it's number four on the charitable list. And all of those that are, it, it, it's interesting to look at the, 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 the list. The top 25 wealthiest states are the 25 least giving states, and the 25 poorest states are the most giving states. It, it's stunning to watch that, cataloguerphilanthropy.com. Uh, it's rather remarkable. So here's what God has done. God has given even the poorest Christians among us enough to give to other people. There's reason to trust him. Um, then individuals. If an individual will graduate from high school and get married before having children, the chances of being poor goes from 12% down to 2%. And the chances of getting into the middle class go from around 40% to 52%. If you just finish high school and get married before you have children. Is that not remarkable? How good God has been with simple measures. So there's an awful lot of reason to trust God. So the father daily supplies the needs of his children so they can live and thrive and give. He's worthy of trust. And Jesus said to pray about it. Then Jesus said to pray for the Father's grace. Matthew 6.2, forgive us our debts. It means to cover, to water, to lift, to leave. In fact, the word forgive is translated in 1 Corinthians 7 to divorce. And so God divorces us from our guilt when we're forgiven. Gregory of Nicaea said we, uh, about this phrase, as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us to the extent that we forgive our debtors. Usually we're praying that we will imitate God. He Jesus is teaching us to pray now that God will imitate us in forgiveness. And this is very real. In the New Testament, praying is real. This element of the disciples' prayer, forgive us our debts, forgive us our sins, recognizes our problem. It's very, very real. I don't know if you've noticed, but about every month, either on Wednesday night or Sunday morning, I'll tell of some failure in my own life or some embarrassing story. Uh, it's not hard to do. Get reminded of them at home. But anyway, <laughs> there's a reason I do that. I do that because I want us to be real. It is possible to be a failure and to follow Jesus with all your heart. And it's possible to be restored. And most of the failures I've talked about are uh, sometimes humorous and, and small 
You know, God's been very kind to me. But I, I want to do that because I want to model in openness and transparency because I don't ever want broken people not to feel like they don't have a place here. Especially among this crowd and the crowd at four o'clock. Because I look and I know and I hear and I listen and I, I cherish the stories I'm told. And my goodness, I can't think of a better place for broken people to be than here. You see, because we're not a museum. We're a what? We're a hospital. I no more complain about sinners being in a church than I do sick people being in a hospital. See, and without sick people, we're out of business. And so... Um, Jesus here recognizes the problem. It, he ruins our prides, our debts. He restores our life by forgiving us. No one comes back to God without adequately dealing with forgiveness of sin. Then it reconciles our people. Uh, when we do forgive others, it changes our disposition towards them, our vision and view of them. And it needs to be a daily practice. And then Jesus taught us to pray for the Father's protection. Lead us not, and the way Jesus may have expressed it in Aramaic may have been more uh, passive. Do not let us be led into temptation. That word can be translated trial. So God does not lead us into sin. And that, that never occurred to Jesus. In fact, it, the English language has a hard time communicating what is communicated here. And difficulties with uh, Matthew 6.13 did not arise until the Bible was translated into English. All the other languages were able to communicate the notion and the thought here. And essentially what Jesus is saying is, Lord, please do not allow us to be taken into anything that would cause us to sin, whether it's temptation or trial. Whether it is. Uh, David Garland wrote this uh, about the uh, text. He said, this prayer means, Lord, do not test me. I'm not able to hold up. And he said, Jesus does not teach us to pray for strength so that we might successful hurdle, successfully hurdle all the difficulties of life that come our way, but to pray that we might avoid them altogether. I have no problem with that. I don't want to just get through trials. I don't want any. And I don't want any temptations either. Now, if he uh, allows me to go through those or sends some my way, then and certainly he doesn't send temptations. But trials, uh, you know, or at least allows trials like Job then I'll trust His grace. But you know what? I'd really not like not to go through them. And it's perfectly fine to pray that way, is what Jesus is telling us to do. So um, Adrian Rogers said then, we, we should pray about these things. And he said, a lot of kneeling will keep you in good standing. And I think he's right. Now, when you ask God to keep you from trials and temptations to sin, here's what you're asking Him to do. You're asking Him to do a sovereign act. In other words, you're assuming this God can come to the evil kingdom and prevent the work of that evil kingdom. That's what you're assuming. God does not come before the demonic kingdom and start negotiating and bargaining. Give a little, take a little. He acts sovereign, sovereignly and in response to this prayer tells the demonic kingdom, enough, no more. He is sovereign. It's also a smart act. One of the ways he keeps us from temptation is to unveil its ugliness. Freddie Gage used to say, sin thrills and it kills, it fascinates and assassinates. George Truett said, it's actually the stupidest thing in all the world. There's not one sin that's helped anyone from the first one until the one committed this present hour. And they're right. But if it were not attractive, they wouldn't call it temptation. 
So we're asking God to wise us up to these issues. And then it's a subversive act. We're asking God to intervene and undermine and subvert the kingdom of darkness. And C.S. Lewis put it this way when talking about the world. He called it enemy-occupied territory. He said that's what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say in disguise, and is calling all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. When you go to church, you're really listening in to the secret wireless from our friends. And that is why the enemy is so anxious to keep us from going and to keep us from praying. So we are in a campaign of sabotage against the demonic kingdom of this earth in order to advance the Lord's cause. So even the weakest person can pray. In fact, Vance Havner, after the death of his wife, wrote what today is just a tremendous book entitled, Though I Walk Through the Valley, about his grief losing Sarah. And he uh, reflected on that and how weak he was and how much he needed the Lord's strength. And he records a prayer in that where he said, Lord, you have the strength, I have the weakness, why don't we team up? And to be on God's team, that's all you need. To qualify, you just have to be weak. There's good news and a great future for you. Then, let's pray about it. Our Father, bless your name that through Jesus and what he has secured and purchased for us at the cross, we can call you Father. And oh God, you're in heaven, a very secure place, and there'll never ever be a coup that will overthrow your throne. And Lord, it thrills me that the king on that throne is my father. And I get to approach, and I I belong there like a son does, purchased by the death and resurrection of Christ. We want to plead with you that you would act in such a way in our world then that your name would be free from all stains. Would you work in such a way that news commentators and those quoted in papers and websites and even Facebook would never be able to effectively stain your name and more than anything, keep us from staining it. We'd rather your kingdom come. We'd rather your will be done everywhere. And we look forward to the day when Jesus will establish it never to be destabilized ever, ever again. In other words, dear God, we praise you. There's a day coming where there will not be a repeat of the Garden of Eden, where it can't happen. Thank you. We want that day to come. We pray at the very least it would come to us and our, and our church family and all of our, uh, all of our Christian friends and all the other churches. We pray it would extend through evangelism as well. And let us have a heart and fire and passion for you and others to see that happen. And as you do that, God, would you please, would you please be quick to make this earth look like heaven? I've never been there, but I sure want to be around that throne. And would you please give us a foretaste of that glory divine that is coming one day? Now, Lord, to make that happen, we're going to need some forgiveness. It's so easy to sin. Sometimes it's quite fun, self-justifying, satisfying for a moment. And we want to pray you'll forgive us. And we want to pray that we can pray without fear that you would only forgive us as much as we have forgiven others because you've expanded our capacity to forgive. Oh God, how we plead for that. Let us treat others with grace as you have treated us. 
And then, God, we pray you'd keep us from trial, from anything that would put us in the way of temptation and trial. Uh, we'll, we'll suffer gladly if that's what you choose. But in the meantime, we, we don't want anything to make us vulnerable to sin. We pray instead for deliverance from the evil one. And we pray this confidently because of the blood of Christ. Thank you that prayers like this and all prayers, that their hope and confidence is found in the performance and the merits and the beauty and the obedience of Jesus Christ, and that by grace they've been transferred to us never to leave again. And we have as much freedom to come to you as Jesus does. We sure don't deserve it, but thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you.